face is beautiful and your eyes are like the stars your gentle hands have healing there inside the sky your loving arms they draw me near and your smile it brings me peace draw me closer oh my Draw me closer, Lord, to Thee, and captivate us, Jesus. Set our eyes on You, devastate us with Your presence falling down, and rushing river, draw us nearer. Holy fountain, consume us with you and captivate us, Jesus, with you. Your voice is powerful and your words are radiant bright. In your breath and shadow, I will come close and abide. You whisper words of love and life, and your fellowship is free. Draw me closer, oh my Lord, draw me closer, Lord, to thee. Jesus, set our eyes on you, devastate us with your presence falling down, and rushing river draws nearer, holy fountain consume us with you.
That is such a good thought that we would be captivated. Right? I mean, that's, that's the place that I think Jesus longs for us to be and to connect. You know, as we move through life, we're, we're always trying to make sense of things. As the story is moving, as we're moving through the passion of Christ and moving towards Calvary, these people are trying to make sense of it. What, what does it mean? And we're always trying to make sense of stuff in life. I mean, maybe when you're driving over here, someone cuts you off, and you're trying to make sense of it. You know, is the person drunk? Are they texting? Are they crazy? What are they? When you have someone who's crabby and waiting on you in the store, you're trying to make sense of it. It's like, why are they crabby at me? I'm just trying to buy food, you know? You try to make sense of it. When a friend doesn't show up as planned, you try to make sense of it. You wonder, well, what, what is it? Don't they like me anymore? Or, I hope they're okay. Or, you know, you're trying to understand. You know what I mean? And in the quest for understanding, it's sometimes very easy to misread things. I mean, sometimes you misread it and it's kind of funny. Like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a young couple who were trying to start their family. And um, on one particular morning, the uh, young wife announced to her equally young husband, guess what, I'm, I'm overdue a month. So I think we're well on our way. But don't tell anybody. She said, don't tell anybody. I, I just want to be sure. So the husband went to work, and about an hour later, the phone rings, and it's the gas company. And the lady on the phone says, do you realize that you're a month overdue? And she said, what? How do you know that? She goes, well, we keep close records on these things. She said, you do? Who, who helps you keep these records? She said, well, we keep records for everybody. You do? Finally, they realized they were talking about two different things. They got that squared away. So it's kind of a funny moment. But there's other moments where it's not so funny. Having just gone down to do my dad's memorial and being with my mom before that, we went out to dinner. And my mom was mistreated when she was a child with, uh, a certain uh, medication, and it caused her to go deaf in her right ear. And she, she really can't hear at all. So if someone stands like a waiter or waitress to the right of her, she can't hear you. And she reads lips super well, but if she can't see her lips, she's stuck. And so this waitress was getting really upset with my mom, and I was getting really upset with the waitress because <laughs> she was not really understanding. And it was, it's always kind of amazed me when I've gone into places with my mom, how people will treat her as, she, as if she's stupid. She's not stupid. She's deaf. Big difference, right? And it's a misread. And misreads happen everywhere. I mean, talk about a huge misread. Mother Teresa was declared unfit for missionary service three times. She finally left on her own. Is that a misread or what? Billy Graham was told after his first attempt to preach to consider other ways in which to serve the Lord. Whoops. Fred Smith received a C in a project at Yale where he outlined a plan for a reliable overnight delivery service. A C he got on it. Later on, he launched Federal Express. Oops. Steven Spielberg had mediocre grades, and it prevented him from getting accepted to the UCLA film school. Misread. I mean, they happen everywhere, don't they? And tonight's passage, as we take a look at it, we want to 
read it in a way where we read it right, where we don't misread, don't misunderstand what's happening for our benefit here tonight. So open up to Mark 14. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read through just the first part of the story. Mark 14. Starting in verse 1. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. This stuff called spike nard. Very expensive. I'm actually going to pass it around. Have you ever smelled spike nard? That's why I'm going to pass it around. It's still very expensive. But this particular uh, jar of nard that she's about to break open was probably a family heirloom and was probably valued at about $40,000 in today's world. So it was basically an inheritance that she was about to pour out. So I'm going to send this around and you can take a whiff of spike nard and get some idea. Yeah, and you can pour it out on your neighbor if you want. But it says, it says this very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Verse 4. Some of those presents were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Now let's think about this. What are some misunderstandings that are happening in this story as it unfolds? Well, we know in the first verse that these bad guys are planning to kill Jesus, the Son of God, and you can't kill God, can you? Misread. But the misread that really bothers me the most, and it's astounding to me, is that the disciples don't seem to have a clue of what's going on. Do they? They're just missing it. And if you go back in Mark 8 and verse 29, this is one of three times Jesus says so plainly, straight on, what's happening. For example, Mark 8, 29. He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, rightly, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Let's read. He does it again in Mark 9, 31. He says again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill me. And after three days, I will rise. Chapter 10, verse 32. Again, he says, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers. They will condemn me and hand me over to be crucified. Three times. And you look at this and you go, why, why aren't they getting it? I mean, out of 12 students, 
as a guy who teaches classes occasionally, it's like I would hope out of 12 students, at least one of them would get it. Why are you not getting it? And the problem is, with them, as it is with us, their understanding is blocked by something they're hanging on to. They can't see it because something they believe or something they've been told is in the way. The Pharisees hang on to their traditions, their power, their stature. They can't possibly see because if they were to see, it would mean to forfeit their place. No, they say. The disciples hang on to their plans, their version of the Messiah, their understanding of what could be, what should be, what will be, and they miss it. And in the same way, we have to be very careful with how we look at these things. It's so easy to miss what God is saying because we don't think it matches with what we believe should be. Can I get an amen to that? Is this not true? Or everyone else is saying something else, so we just can't go there. But thank God for the woman who we find out in the Gospel of John is Mary. It's Simon the leper's home, but it's also Lazarus's home. It's where the sisters Martha and Mary reside. And Mary is the one who gets it. She reads it right. She sees through what's going on as she makes her move. I mean, this is as radical and as risky as a seventh grader going against the tide of social peer pressure. She just turns and walks the other way. She cuts through it all. No one else seems to be getting this understanding. No one else seems to be doing what she's about to do. No one else is thinking what she's thinking, but she does it. She has the right understanding. I remember uh, the pastor's daughter that, uh, you know, Betsy and I remember when they were little, we babysat them and took care of them. And when April was uh, in high school, she was 16. You know, when you're 16, you just get your driver's license. It's big. You got wheels now. You're portable. You could, you know, there's a whole new world open up to you. And so April and her friends were going to go see a movie. And so her mom and dad said, you know, what are you going to go see? And they said, we're going to go see this movie. And it was a PG movie. So they thought, well, you know, okay. And then when they got to the theater, the ringleader of the whole group said, no, we're not going to that movie. That's boring. We're going to this R movie. And April stood there for a moment. She thought, what am I going to do? And she prayed. She said, Lord, what do I do? And, and she, she just had this peace. So she just spoke out of the peace. It said, you guys, I think I'm just going to call my parents and go home because I told them I was going to go to that movie. And, of course, right at that moment, the whole group said, oh, sure, we'll do that, right? That's what 16-year-olds do. There was that tense moment. And there's that power struggle and the tension. And April said, listen, I, you know, that's fine. If you guys want to go to that movie, go. My parents won't mind coming to pick me up. And then she whispered another person. She said, Lord, bail me out. <laughs> Help me. And amazingly, the ringleader of the group said, you know what? Let's not even go see a movie. Let's go back to April's house and play games. Would that be all right? And they turned and went. Oops, sorry. Got cabs flying all over the place. And she took a stand. She went against the tide. But when you take those stands at those times, you know you're risking being misunderstood, right? 
being put out, put away. So here's Mary, back to the story. She, she's seeing it for what it is. She walks past these men, right into you know, the men's meeting, and she brings this big uh, alabaster container of this spike nard. And as she interrupts the meeting, people are watching her, and she cracks it open. And she does what not even kings would do in that day. Because for people to have spike nard in their home meant that they were either wealthy or probably kings. They had access to wealth and privilege. And they would use it very sparingly because it was so valuable. But she takes this big jar, she cracks it open, and she begins to not just put out drops, she pours it. And as she pours it, the room begins to fill with the fragrance that you're smelling as the bottle goes around. But she's not done. It's not radical enough. Her understanding is going to take her further and deeper. She lets down her hair. In this culture, that's a no-no unless you're in mourning. First of all, the disciples are taken aback. She interrupts the meeting. Second of all, they think she's a little bit loopy to take the family heirloom, pop the cork, and start pouring it over Jesus' head. Now she lets her hair down. And then even more radically, as the hair is down, she gets down in the familiar place that Mary had occupied at Jesus' feet and begins to wipe off Jesus' feet, dust-covered feet with her hair. The scripture says the entire room erupts with indignation. You know that Greek word indignation? It's actually a word picture word. You know what it comes from? When horses snort. So picture the room, people. As she risks being radical, as she's down on her knees, as she's giving this offering, she's pouring out all that she has. Here's what the disciples who should know better are doing. What? This is... Stupid. That's what they're doing. Right? That's all the snorting I know. And they're, they're looking down the long end of their nose and they're just going, what's wrong with this woman? One of the problems with being right with God is usually you wind up being wrong with everybody else. Right? And we need to watch out, otherwise we can lose our way, we can forfeit our right understandings. So many Christians are afraid of being misunderstood, so they back up, back off, or back down. And in this moment, Mary does none of those. Instead, she goes right out, pours out. Because Mary is working out of her relationship with Jesus. She's working out of the familiar place of intimacy, sitting in his... She knows... Jesus. And then in the text, notice what happens. Jesus immediately defends her. He praises her. He elevates what she's doing. What's amazing to me is that the disciples could say something like, Jesus isn't worth this. Are you reading that, what I'm reading? These are his 12 star students, and, and they're, at the, they're in their MDiv program, and they can't see that Jesus is worth it. Man, they're missing it. But not Mary. 
not Mary. She's got an understanding so deep in her heart. She knows her value to Jesus. She knows that there is nothing that she owns that she could possibly pour out that Jesus could not exceed. And she knows what's coming in the next few days is the most precious ointment that could be poured out is about to be poured out for her. The value of something is typically marked by the price someone is willing to pay for it. When I was thinking about that, thinking about what Mary was seeing, what she was understanding, what she was getting, and the price, I mean, for her to pour it out freely. She's not pouring it out to get a relationship with Jesus. She's pouring out because she understands out of the relationship with Jesus, Jesus is about to give all he is for her. When I was thinking about this, and I was recalling a story of a Stanford nurse who worked in an area where they, they had uh, the, the kids, the pediatrics there, and they would typically send very uh, complex cases out to the Stanford Hospital. And as the story goes, there was a little girl named Liz, I think she was four years old, that had this strange blood disease. And there wasn't any medication, any research done on how to stop this, except for the, the doctor had a theory. He said if we could find somebody who somehow survived this disease, they would probably have the antibodies in their blood that would at least give her a fighting chance. And so they made careful search, and as they made careful search, they found out that her brother, who was a year older, had had this disease. And so the doctor brought him in, and he sat him down, and he said, Tim, you know your sister Liz is pretty sick. And you know that um, we don't have a lot of medications that can help her. So we think that her best chance is that if someone who had this disease and survived it could donate their blood, she could probably live. Big eyes. And Tim, we understand that you've had this disease. So your parents and I would like to ask you if you would give your blood for your sister. So the little boy, his head dropped and he thought for a moment, took a deep breath and he said yes. And so they prepared a room to draw his blood and they take the blood and um, I don't know how much they, they actually took, but when, when they finished taking it, they take out the, the needle and the little boy is kind of quivering and his chin is shivering. The doctor says, Tim, are you okay? And he looks up at the doctor and he says, well, doctor, when will I die? He had thought when they had asked for the blood, this was it. He's going to give his life for his sister. Just kind of an earthly example of a bigger picture that's happening. But, G but Mary knew what Jesus was about to do. To give his blood. The only blood that could possibly save us. But here's the deal. 
For two weeks I've been thinking about this message. Not settled. And I couldn't get past the story. I said, Lord, what is it? What is it about this story? What is it that's so important? And it wasn't until today in a walk when I heard clearly. Want to know what the Lord said to me? I want those people to know that they are worth it. That you're worth it. Because we can sing the songs, nothing but the blood. We can sing, what can wash my sin away? And we can take that place and we can say, oh, what a wretch I am. What a worm I am. What a sinner I am. How bad I am. And, you know, theologically we can say we can understand that. But if we stay in that place and we just, we're kind of like snatched from the fire and we're kind of like the kids who get pulled out of a bad situation and thrown in the backseat of the car and taken home and the car is frozen solid because everyone's so uptight and angry and we're like, okay, yeah, so I get back home, but I'm just a nasty kid. And I think far too many of us look at our Christianity that way. Look at our relationship that way. But here's the reality. Jesus did what he did for the joy set before him. What was his joy? You. When Mary is down on the floor, she is not down on the floor trying to earn value. She is down on the floor. She has done what she's done because she understands she's worth it to Jesus. And even right now, that's bouncing off some of your hearts and heads. What? I'd be worth it to Jesus? And you need to soak and marinate in this story. Because what, what else, then, is, is marking your value? What else marks your value? Is it God or is it the crowd? Are you listening to these naysayers, like the people that were booing and hissing Mary? She did what she did, like, what, what a dummy could have given, given to the poor? Is it some misunderstanding you have? Do you really realize that Jesus says you're worth it? We are created for and by him to be with him. Amen. And you are worth it. Amen. Is it hitting? Do you see? Because otherwise our Christianity looks like the disciples. We're not getting the full picture. We're not having the full experience. We kind of hang on to stuff. We try real hard to do stuff. We don't have the freedom and the liberty. And we don't have the, the radical flow that Mary has. He just gives it all. She doesn't have any fears. She doesn't have anything to hang on to. She doesn't have anything to worry about. It's all his. I guess... I'm his, and I'm worth it. I'm his, and I'm worth it. So tonight, we're taking a slightly different tact on the Good Friday story. And do you know why we call it Good Friday? Has anyone ever explained that to you? Because it seems odd to call it Good Friday, doesn't it? I mean, this is what's going on. It doesn't seem very good, does it? You guys know why we call it Good Friday? 
good as an archaic English phrase for holy. And the holy Friday, holy means to be consecrated, set apart. And the God who created you, the God who designed you, comes to get you for him. You're set apart. And ladies and gentlemen, you need to get this theologically squared away in your hearts and heads. You are worth it. So I can say it, but Holy Spirit, come and work it into our hearts and minds. Liberate our hearts and minds. We're going to do communion now, and I want to invite you to really take a moment. And we're going to, we've got four tables, so when you're ready, you can come up and you can get... And you'll notice that there's a, it's not those little communion wafers that stick to the roof of your mouth that we have on Sunday morning. It's a big chunk of bread. And I wanted to do that on purpose. I thank Matt and Heidi for their work to do on that because I want you to see that God gives you a big chunk of his love. And he wants you to know tonight, you are worth it. You are worth it. Are you hearing me? You are worth it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for me. I pray for my friends. I pray that you would break through in a way that we would discover a deeper level of what Mary had. The freedom, the liberty, the peace, the, the, the place at your feet, the understanding of how much you loved her and how much you looked at her. Just, there's there's a, a worth there. So Holy Spirit, come. Would you please come? Would you eradicate misunderstandings that keep us from understanding that we're worth it to you? And as we break bread, as we remember the cross, all the things that we've heard and seen, how terrible it was, how painful it was, how unbelievable it was, but yet for the joy set before you, you endured it because you knew we were worth it. So come now, Lord. Do the work in our hearts and our lives as we break bread and we remember once again your great work. In Jesus' name, amen.